Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I am Dilan Okçuoğlu. I'm a Mustafa Barzani postdoctoral fellow and professorial lecturer in Global Kurdish Studies, America University School of International Service in Washington, D.C. And this is our third episode for Kurdish Studies series of New Books Network. And we have Yanni Voller, who is a professor at University of Kent School of politics, and international relations. Today, we are going to talk about Yaniv's second book on second-generation liberation movements, rethinking colonialism in Iraqi Kurdistan and southern Sudan, which is published from Cambridge University Press in this year. Welcome, Yaniv. Uh, hi, Dylan. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. We are very happy to host you today for our third episode in Kurdish studies. Uh, so let's start uh, with you because I would like you to I would like you to introduce yourself to our listeners. I'm pretty sure most of them know you from your work, but can you please introduce yourself briefly? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm a um, I'm at the School of Politics and IR at the University of Kent. I'm a senior lecturer in Middle East Studies. Um, before that, I was a Liverhome Fellow at the University of Edinburgh. Um, I got my PhD from the London School of Economics. And I've been working on, um, I've, I've, I've been working on, on um, Kurdistan for a very long time now. But as you can see from the book, I've also been spreading to other for other cases and other regions. Yeah, exactly. So I was about to ask you that question, specific question about your second book, which is actually today's topic. It will be actually under the spotlight, but can you please give us a little background on this book? Because it's also quite connected to your first book. Um, so uh, I will be really happy to hear you um, and you know to summarize the gist of the book for ourselves, for for the listeners, actually. Yes, of course, excellent. So, this book is about it's about liber- liberation wars, but it is about post-colonial liberation wars, uh, liberation wars. So, in other words, this book focuses on the liberation movements that emerged in in post-colonial states and the wars between liberation movements that. Uh, represent minorities in the peripheries of, of the, uh, the newly founded states and, and the, uh, the, the governments, which themselves had risen from the struggle against European colonialism. Now, um, the reason that the book is, um, is titled Second Generation Liberation Wars is that in this book I argue that, that these these new liberation wars or these these post-colonial liberation wars in fact recreated many of the conditions and factors that shaped the first generation liberation wars right so so the wars between the colonized people in asia africa and the middle east and european imperialism and um understanding uh understanding these wars require um, it requires a better understanding of role perceptions, um, identities, and practice in international politics. So, in order to illustrate my argument, in order to um, in order to discuss these these second generation liberation wars, um, I use the cases of the liberation wars in Iraq and Sudan between the Kurdish and the uh, Southern Sudanese nationalist or separatist movements against the, the governments in Baghdad and, and Khartoum. 
So, um, and while 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 I'm using them, while I'm using these cases, um, I also I hope provide a detailed narrative of these liberation wars and these liberation movements. Okay, uh, thank you so much for this detailed answer. I think it's now very clear to our listeners, um, and it directly uh, links us. Uh, to the next question, which is about the motivations behind writing such an interesting book. Like, Yaniv, how did you decide to work on this topic uh, for your second book? Uh, uh, thanks for the question. So I, can, I think this book is a, very much a continuation of my previous research and my, my previous book and my overall interest in the... Um, I think what, what I can describe as the politics of the margins, right? Of, of my, my interest in in movements and actors that have operated in the periphery, especially especially um, liberation movements that represent persecuted minorities. Um, and I think I, the, the story of how I've come about to carry out this research also shows the, the it really shows nicely the the, the process that. I think we often go through when we develop our subjects of interest. So, so my, my previous book, if, if I may go back for, for just, just a minute to my previous book, um, my previous book was about the emergence and the development of, of the Kurdish de facto state in northern Iraq or, or in Iraqi Kurdistan. And in this book, in this previous book, I was trying to show how this position or status of de facto unrecognized statehood um, shaped the the strategies and the perceptions and the behavior of the Kurdish leadership in Iraq. But So uh, it very much focused on the period following um, 1991 and especially 2003. But when I was writing the book, I thought that, you know, it is necessary to provide a very brief background on, on the pre, on, on, you know, on, on the pre-autonomy period, on the period that kind of led the emergence of the Kurdistan regional government and the Kurdish de facto state. So I, you know, I wanted to do it thoroughly. So I went to the archives. I, I went to the archives at um, SOAS and Exeter and Durham University and, and the, um, uh, the Kurdish Institute of Paris. And I started reading a bit pamphlets and newspapers and journals that were published by, by the Kurdish parties, by, by the Kurdistan Democratic Party and later by the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. And um, these, you know, these, these archives have really impressive collections, and I was I was really enjoying reading the, the kind of discourse and narrative that the Kurdish nationalist movement was was building in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And in one case, I was reading the um, uh, Kurdistan Democratic Party's, you know, party organ in from 1972. It was in Arabic, so it was designated for for you know for Arabic speaking Arabic reading audiences. And in this, in this journal, there was one entry about the peace agreement between the Sudanese government and the, um, and the southern Sudanese rebels, right? The, the uh, Anyanya, the, sorry, the uh, Anyanya, the uh, southern Sudanese liberation movement. And so, you know, and, 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 and the article kind of discussed how um, how this peace agreement is really important for other liberation movements and other oppressed minorities, and um, it really stressed the importance of the southern, you know, Sudanese liberation movement. And, and, and to me, it was it was quite a revelation uh, that there, there was actually, um, you know, we tend to talk about the national liberation movement on the anti-colonial movement when we talk about. The, the movements that fought against European imperialism, but um, and, and you know, in retrospect, it may sound a bit intuitive or, or obvious, but but to me, it was quite surprising to think that there was actually a global movement of post-colonial anti-liberation movements, and this this really triggered my my interest, right? It, and and I I started thinking a lot about how important. This, this 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 episode actually was in shaping uh, in shaping statehood and the idea of independence and and um, 
really thinking about how these movements, you know, the post-colonial liberation movements perceive themselves and their their ideas and what they were trying to achieve. So, so I started, so I, I finished my, my project, I finished my PhD dissertation that served as the basis for my previous book, and I knew that this is going to be my next project. I'm going to focus on Sudan and Iraq, or more precisely, on, on the Kurdish movement in, in Iraq and the Southern Sudanese movement. So I started delving more into the case of the Southern Sudanese liberation movement, and I started comparing it to the Kurdish liberation struggle in Iraq. Um, but at this point, at this point, I started realizing another thing. I started realizing that liberation struggles are not just about the liberators, right? They're not just about the liberation movement, but it's also about the other side, the government. So, you know, the, uh, the, the oppressors, depends, of course, on which perspective you're taking. Um, and I become, so, so at this point, it, Christ, you know, it, it, it became clear to me that this is what I'm interested in, right? The, the nature and the sources and the factors that shaped the post-colonial liberation wars. And this is where I started developing my idea of first-generation and second-generation liberation movements and, and liberation wars. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, uh, so quite interesting also because, um, like we know, liberation strategies uh, can take different forms. Uh, and you delve into this, uh, like, um, extensive topic in both of your book projects, like in the first and second book, you cover different aspects of uh, those liberation strategies that are that have been used by uh, guerrilla fighters um, um, and also uh, different liberation movements. So uh, you uh, briefly touched on that, but uh, I would like you to uh, elaborate a little further on that. How do you think your second book project? is linked to your uh, first book project, first book, actually, that you published. It, 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 is, it is actually, it is very much connected, I think, because uh, in, in a way, you can say that this, that my second book, right, this current book, um, it, it actually closes the circle with my first book, because in the first book, the, the, the liberation struggle of the 1950s, 1970s, you know, even the 1980s, it was mainly in the background. I focused much more on the post 1990s, uh, on, on on the nature of liberation struggle in the post 1990s, right? And I demonstrated, I, I I paid a lot of attention to the idea of state building as a liberation strategy, right? As to, to state building as an act of liberation in itself that kind of replaced the the more the, the, the more classic liberation strategies, such as guerrilla warfare and you know liberation diplomacy, and in my new book I actually go I, I actually go back, and I devote much more attention to these classic liberation strategies, right? To 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 the emergence of guerrilla of, of guerrilla fighting of guerrilla strategies, and I end the book in the early 1990s. Where, where, where state building was gradually becoming a strategy. So, so you, you know, so as I said, it's, it's, um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm closing the, the circle with, with the second book. Okay, yes, it's now much clearer to me. And again, uh, amazing work. Uh, and I would encourage everyone to, to read it and assign it for their courses on like rebel diplomacy, rebel politics, but also state building, state society relations, and of course, uh, comparative uh, MENA politics. Um, so the next question is actually, um, you, again, you have uh, mentioned uh, most of it, but I'm pretty sure there are a lot to say uh, about the main takeaways, uh, main contributions of your work, uh, mostly because it's, uh, it's a good example of interdisciplinary approach to social science. Um, and uh, sometimes, you know, we know that uh, this is an aspect that is that can be ignored, especially in international politics. So uh, what are the main contributions uh, of your book and what should your readers, students and scholars in international politics learn from your book, Yanif? 
so I, I would say um, that this book has several themes and, and I, I really try to address as many audiences as possible. It is, it is an interdisciplinary uh, book in nature because my work, my research is interdisciplinary in nature. I really do believe in, the, in, in, in bridging between uh, politics and IR and sociology and history and I, I really did try to achieve that in the book. So, for example, I would say from from a history perspective, right? If from from uh, from the perspective of historiography, uh, this book seeks to challenge how we perceive colonialism and decolonization, because the literature tends to uh, the, the literature on colonialism and decolonization often tends to view to view these themes, right? To view colonialism and decolonization as particular moments in history, right? Colonialism is usually, uh, when, 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 when authors, when researchers use the term colonialism, they usually refer to, you know, to, to the episode in which European imperial powers occupied overseas territories and, and started exploiting their lands and their natural resources and their people, uh, whereas decolonization is the episode in which European powers began withdrawing from these territories, right? With, with the British handing over Hong Kong back to China as, as, as the end of the episode of decolonization. And what I'm trying to show in this book is that for many, right, for many people, for many movements, for many communities within the newly formed states, within the post-colonial states, colonialism actually didn't end. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not referring to the idea of neo-colonialism and and you know uh, the, the the more Marxist Marxist perception of of neo-colonialism and exploitation by by economic powers. What I'm referring to is that uh, what I'm trying to say is that for many communities in the newly independent state, colonialism didn't really end. Colonialism, in its most basic definition, right. Uh, the, meaning the occupation and exploitation of people and land. It didn't end, but it, it, simply, it simply now gained a new face, right? Um, um, and and uh, many, of the, many of the post-colonial liberation movements didn't speak of neo-colonialism. They, they, they started seeing themselves as the victims of classic colonialism, right? The same colonialism that was uh, initially designed and used by colonial powers, but was now taking place in the new countries, right? And it was practiced by the new governments. And I demonstrate, for example, I, I, in the book, I demonstrate how the Southern Sudanese rebels and how the Kurdish, how the Kurdish, you know, um, nationalists, how they started, how, how they constantly... So as, you, so as you can see in the book, um, the Southern Sudanese liberation uh, activists and the Kurdish and the Kurdish nationalists, right? The the Anyanya or the other Southern Sudanese liberation movements and and the uh, the KDP in Kurdistan, they, they they actually spoke in terms of Arab or Iraqi or Sudanese colonialism, right? They actually talked about the um, Arab exploitation of the native black. African in South in, in Southern Sudan, or, or you know of the the um, of the native Kurds, and really, this this movement, the intellectual leaders of these movements, they actually embraced a very nativist discourse. They pro- portrayed themselves as the native populations that are being exploited by the other, by an external occupier that tries to impose on them uh, its its language, its culture. And even religion, in the case of in the case of Sudan, right, on the path of stealing their natural resources. Now, the thing is, and I think this is the more controversial part of the book, uh, but I really strive to support this argument. They were not entirely wrong. They were actually quite right in depicting the situation in this way because the Iraqi and the Sudanese governments really did apply what you, what you can describe as, as textbook colonial strategies and tactics and, and practices to oppress the, uh, the, Kurdish, the, the, the Kurds and the South Sudanese and then their liberation aspirations and actually exploiting their territories and their people and their natural resources, right? So you have 
the changing Iraqi and Sudanese governments uh, employing the same divide and rule strategies, the exploited tribal, religious, and social cleavages to, to divide the, the Kurds in the southern Sudanese, right? And to try and steal confrontations between, you know, among among the Kurds and, and the southern Sudanese. Um, you have these government. You can actually see these governments recruiting tribal militias and guards from the local population to serve as the local police, just as the British did in Sudan and Iraq. You actually have the governments in Baghdad and Khartoum sending settlers, right, from perceived loyalist populations, namely Arab settlers, to 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 uh, Iraqi Kurdistan and to southern Sudan in order to take control over these territories in order to change their demography. And even the discourse, right, even the Iraqi and Sudanese discourse was inspired by the colonial discourse, right? They they started talking about the civilizing mission, the, the Arab or even Islamic civilizing mission. So the government in Khartoum, which tried to forcibly Islamize and Arabize the southern Sudanese, you know, you actually had Sudanese officials constantly talking about bringing culture and civilization to the primitive, uh, to the primitive Africans, right? They, they actually talked about dressing the naked Africans, which was the same discourse that the British colonialists were using. Um, and even even in the case of Iraq, right? You had different governments, starting from the uh, the monarchy to the Ba'ath regime, they were constantly speaking about. They were constantly portraying their actions as bringing progress to the underdeveloped region of, of Kurdistan and to the backward, you know, to the backward Kurdish people. But in, in reality, of course, Kurdistan and southern Sudan remained very much underdeveloped and marginalized by the center, just as it was in colonial times. But these governments still kept talking about, you know, about the idea of their presence as, as civilizing the the uh, the people of the periphery. So, so this is the book's history perspective, and you know, and and you know, it's my effort to engage with the historiography of colonialism, decolonization, and liberation. But, but I think that one question still remains: you know, why why did this happen? Why did both the liberation movements and the oppressive governments ended up embracing the same tactics and strategies and ideas of their their predecessors? And the, you know, I mean, is it, were they simply imitating their predecessors? Were, were the Southern Sudanese and, and Kurdish nationalists portraying themselves as, you know, anti-colonial movements simply because they were trying to imitate the, you know, the, the, the previous successful liberation movements? And the answer is no, right? The answer is much, I think the answer is much deeper than that. And understanding this, understanding the causes for why the Kurds and the South, Southern Sudanese, and I keep, sorry, I keep referring to the Southern Sudanese rather than South Sudanese, because at the time, uh, and I also stress this in the book, at the time, this was still Southern Sudan, right? It wasn't South, it wasn't yet South Sudan, the independent state, it was still Southern Sudan. And, and, and um, I think, you know, really understanding the history of the Southern Sudanese and Kurdish liberation uh, movements requires also applying tools from the discipline of you know, political science and international relations. And I think this really makes this book interdisciplinary in nature. And I, I'm happy to elaborate on this if, if, if you wish. Definitely. Um, and uh, this is actually going to be my next question because I was very curious about that. Since uh, I also pursue interdisciplinary uh, approach uh, to my work on Kurdish borderlands and state control, so um, what do you exactly mean by interdisciplinary perspective? Because, as I said, this is one of the aspects that make your work quite appealing uh, to your readers. Uh, and do you think that uh, there is such a significant gap in the international relations about that? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, I think so. So 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 again. So here comes into the picture the international relations aspect of the uh, of the book. And um, what I do in the book is I actually incorporate theories, ro- th- sorry, theories of roles and practice in international politics, right, in international relations, in order to understand 
these um, second generation liberation wars, as I referring to them. Now, I'm, 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 I'm simplifying a bit because we are short, you know, because we are limited in time, but role theory in international relations suggests that actors absorb certain expectations and perceptions about how different actors, how they should behave uh, according to the roles that they wish to play, right? So, for example, when, when a separatist movement perceives itself as a liberation movement fighting against an external oppressor, its leadership will act on, um, its leadership will embrace ideas and, and um, implement ideas of, uh, that they believe that you know, uh, national liberation movements should, should, should adopt, right? They'll behave in the same way that they believe that they've come to, um, that they've come to learn that liberation movements should, should behave. Um, so, um, and uh, linked that also, so I mentioned role theory, but also embrace, also apply practice theory to, to, to understanding these liberation movements. And practice theory is very much linked with, with role theory in that it advances the idea that, that again, actors in international politics adopt certain practices that, that are related to the roles that they are trying, uh, that they are playing, right? So, for example, when it comes to the, uh, when it comes to the, you know, Southern Sudanese and Kurdish liberation movements, these movements didn't, they, they didn't necessarily initially see themselves as, as liberation movements, right, or as anti-colonial movements. They were feeling marginalized. They were trying to find, they were trying to carve themselves a place in the newly independent state, right? Um, and, and in many cases, at least in the first years, many, many Kurds in Iraq, many uh, many Southern Sudan, many people in Southern Sudan actually accepted the idea of being part of Iraq and, or Sudan, right? You actually had, um, in 1920, you actually had many Kurds joining Arabs in what is now known as the, you know, as the Iraqi revolt of 1920 against British occupation. But once they started feeling marginalized, once they realized that their culture is oppressed and they are being persecuted, they started these the, the um, intellectuals and political leaders of these communities, they started trying to look for ways to express their antagonism toward the new state. And um, the first thing that the, the, the default choice was actually the anti-colonial uh, liberation movement, right? They um, because Iraqi Kurds and um, and Southern Sudanese intellectuals, many of them were very much exposed to the events of, to the, to the first generation of the, you know, to the first generation anti-colonial struggle against European imperialism. Um, they witnessed it firsthand. They were part of it, as I mentioned, right? Kurds were actually part of the anti-British movement that existed in Iraq in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Um, they, 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 they saw... They saw how um, dif- you know how the different nations in Africa and Asia and the Middle East liberated themselves from European imperialism and colonialism. So for them, it made sense. It made it made sense that if a movement wants to, if oh, sorry, if a community, right, if a group of people wants to liberate themselves, if they want to get autonomy or, or even independence. The only way to achieve it is to become an anti-colonial liberation movement, right? So you actually had the Southern Sudanese and Iraqi Kurds embracing these ideas, adopting them, not because they were necessarily imitating the um, the other liberation movements, not because they were imitating the Arabs in you know um, in in, in um, Iraq or Sudan or Egypt or, or other countries, but because this these were these practices, right? Were embedded in the um, 
in the international community or you know international society if, if you want to you know use a more international relations discourse right at the time um, and you know and they were and, and again they were exposed to it by by taking by either taking an active part in previous years in the libera- in, in the anti-colonial liberation struggle against European colonizers or by or by, by constantly engaging with other liberation movements. And I really try to show it in the book. So in the case of the Southern Sudanese, for example, many of them, uh, many of the leaders of the Southern Sudanese liberation movement, they traveled across Africa. Um, they attended um, the, um, the newly established universities in Africa. They met there with other, with the leaders of the uh, liberation movements that fought against European colonialism. They discussed with them Che Guevara and Mao Zedong, right? They they met, um, they met, they they read um, uh, a lot of what Gamal Abdel Nasser, right, from Egypt, was writing, and they also met with him. And you actually had, and you, you, there are so many uh, documentations of of Kurdish leaders and Southern Sudanese leaders meeting with Nasser and trying to discuss with him the you know the the, the Kurdish and South and Southern Sudanese rights for for autonomy and even independence. And by the way, uh, Nasser was the greatest disappointment of both the Kurds and the Southern Sudanese because they, they had so many expectations of him. Um, and the same goes, uh, the same goes as for the colonial government, by the way. It's not as if, what I'm, so what I'm trying to show in the book is that the colonial, the, the, sorry, the, uh, the post-colonial government they also ended up resulting, as I mentioned, they also ended up resulting to the colonial practices. But they didn't do so because they wanted to be colonial governments, right? These governments, so the governments in, in Sudan, the governments in uh, in Iraq, they they emerged out of the anti-colonial struggle. They, in, in their vision, they were actually fighting to eliminate colonial legacies in their countries. But when they were facing the same challenges, when they were facing the same challenges that the colonial governments were facing, namely, um, you know, namely, uh, dissent, you know, dissent in the periphery, their default choice was to resort to colonial practices. They didn't see themselves as doing that. But many of the, many of the post-colonial elites were actually very much exposed to colonial practices of oppression. They were, um, you know, um, they were exposed to it either as their victim, either as the victims of the colonial oppression, but they were also exposed to it as part of their. Some of them were actually part of the colonial establishment. They served as policemen. They were educated in colonial institutions. They were trained by, so for example, military officers in Sudan and Iraq. The first generations were educated by British colonial officers, right? Many of the elites, many of the political elites in Sudan were educated in um, at Gordon Memorial College, right, where they actually had British instructors. So when they resorted to colonial practices, it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice of becoming colonizers, but because these practices were so embedded in their history and their experience that it was almost their default choice to resolve these strategies. And this is what I mean when I say that, you know, we need to think about roles and role perceptions and, and practices when we think about these, this episode in, 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 you know, in the history of these countries and these movements. Yes, exactly. And that's why you also uh, underline that a couple of times, actually, in different parts of the book. Um, and that's why you also invite your readers uh, to think about a new understanding, like a new conception of international politics. I think that's quite important to remember. Um, so uh, you, again, uh, like briefly touched on that, but I find it very important. And I think uh, that's one of the main takeaways, of course, at least for me from this book, uh, is the comparison between... Um, these different liberation movements, but actually both across time and uh, location, like space. So um, you make comparison between first generation versus second generation of 
these liberation movements or anti-colonial movements, but also you make comparison between Iraqi Kurdistan and southern Sudan, uh, both in the past and in modern times, as I said. So can you please tell us a little more about that? Like, what are the similarities and differences between these two liberation movements? So it was, uh, it, it, uh, I mean, that, that's an excellent question because it was really surprising to learn, to, you know, to learn how similar these, the, the southern Sudanese and Kurdish liberation movements are and how similar the situation, you know, the situation in both countries uh, actually was, right? Because, um, uh, again, we have two post-colonial countries in um, and which are dominated by very particular ethno-religious group, two very large countries, right? And uh, and you actually have these, these, you know, these Arab Muslim elites dominating a periphery that was very, much more diverse and much more, uh, I think, you know, heterogeneous. Um, and, you know, uh, so, I, so of course I mentioned that both the uh, Iraqi and Sudanese elites, and, and uh, the, the governments changed, right, in both countries, Particularly in Sudan, you had many um, you had many changes in the government. In Iraq, less so because since 1968 and up until 2003, you actually had the bad government in power. But the point is that you actually had um, you had a situation in which a an ethnic um, and in, you know in the case of Sudan, of course, ethno religious minority was fighting for liberation and was fighting against. The oppression and imposition of the uh, culture of the ruling elite in the center. Now, when it comes to the southern Sudanese and the uh, the Kurds in Iraq, you can say that both of these communities were subjected to very similar forms of oppression. Right? Um, the government in Baghdad employed a brutal physical and cultural. Arabization campaign, uh, whereas in the case of Sudan, the the Sudanese governments, most of them, try to forcibly Islamize and Arabize the southerners. Now, you you can say, you can say that um, the southern Sudanese never faced a systemic genocide, as was actually the case of the Kurds in Iraq, right? I mean, in Iraq, you actually had the Ba'ath regime designing and, and, and executing a genocidal plan, right, during, during the Anfal campaign. In, in Sudan, you never had the same systemic genocide. Of course, you had hundreds of thousands of Sudanese dying in war and, and starvation, but you never had, you know, you never had this, this really clearly planned and executed um, uh, genocide. But, but but the thing is, in both of the, in both cases, there, there was an excessive, extreme use of violence and oppression of a community in the periphery that was not feeling part of the country anymore, or that was start, that was gradually losing itself. Sorry, its um, sense of belonging to the country that they were being part of. Uh, that you know. Um, you know, they were not being part of the country that was created by the colonial powers. Um, and by the way, the, the Sudanese and Iraqi governments also realized the similarities between, you know, between their predicaments in the south and the north, uh, respectively. Um, there is an incident which I which I mentioned in the book, where the uh, commander of the Sudanese secret police, and, and it was the, it was the uh, Sudanese secret police that really uh, that, 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 domin- you know, that dominated the campaign against, the counterinsurgency campaign against the uh, Southern Sudanese liberation movement. So we actually had this uh, Sudanese police commander visiting Iraq sometime after the, uh, the rise of the Ba'ath regime, before, before the uh, Addis, Addis Ababa peace accords. And during, during this visit, the Sudanese police commander is taken by his hosts in Iraq to northern Iraq to witness how the Iraqi government deals with the Kurdish insurgency. And actually writes back to Khartoum, right? And he tells them 
um, the, you know, it tells them how Iraq and Sudan are facing the same problem of separatism, and it was being taken to see how the Iraqi government deals with, you know, with, with the situation. And he, he, he ended up returning to Sudan with, with a gift, right, with a police helicopter that was given to the Sudanese police by, by the Iraqi government. Um, so, so you know, so the different, the, sorry, the similarities are quite amazing. Of course, there are many differences, but I have to admit that in this book, because I try to demonstrate the validity of role theory and practice theory to explaining post-colonial violence, um, I, I focus much more on the similarities. I guess that you can say that the main difference between between you know between Sudan and, and Iraq or between the Southern Sudanese and the Kurdish Liberation Movement is that the you know the, the Southern Sudanese eventually gained independence. Whereas the Kurds in you know in all parts of Kurdistan are still not you know they still don't have a they still don't have a state right there's no Kurdish state um, but even here there is actually some similarity and I think it might relate to the next subject that you want to discuss. Uh, that's correct exactly um, so. Um, because uh, towards the end of your book, in chapter five, um, you tell us how guerrilla fighting uh, turns into uh, like state building and uh, rebel, uh, like diplomacy somehow. Uh, uh, so um, maybe it was not uh, legitimate in the past, but these actors uh, develop strategies. Uh, so that they would become legitimate actors in, in international politics. So, uh, meanwhile, we also witnessed uh, the meaning, the change in the meaning of liberation and independence across time. So, um, like, but what we see is that this process is still ongoing. So, uh, and it has its own stages. So. Uh, what are the difficulties and prospects of this ongoing process for these liberation movements in Iraqi Kurdistan and southern Sudan? Mm. Mm. Excellent. So, so as I so as I mentioned, right, and this this kind of takes me to the last. It's also related to the last chapter of the book. And as I said, it, it kind of closes the circle with my previous book in that. Um, I try to show how in the 19, in the late 1980s, and particularly the early 1990s, the perception of what liberation means actually started changing. And you can see both the Kurdish leadership and the Southern Sudanese leadership can, can gradually shifting from focusing on guerrilla fighting and insurgency to state building as, as kind of you know as the main as the main basis. For the liberation struggle, um, and and of course, I mean, you know, it's important to remember that it's also had to do with the opportunities that the Kurds and the Southern Sudanese gained in the 1990s. Right in the case of Kurdistan, you actually, you know, the the Kurds actually gained autonomy because of external circumstances, because of the collapse of the Ba'ath regime, rather than you know, rather than inter, you know, sudden international. Legitimacy or acceptance of the of the you know demand for for independence and uh, it's it's quite similar in the case of southern Sudan the the kind of almost collapse of the central government in the nine in the mid nineteen eighties and then the rise of uh, of the, um, uh, uh, the Islamist government in uh, under Omar al Bashir uh, and so so. The, the collapse of the central governments in both cases, or the weakening of this, at least in the case of Sudan, the weakening of the central government, kind of allowed they, they, they allowed these movements an opportunity to also start focusing on institution building, right, on governance building as as the way uh, to continue the liberation struggles. But it wasn't just the opportunities, right, and this is what I tried to show in the book. It was also a realization that liberation is changing, that legitimacy is changing, right? It's not enough anymore to be an anti-colonial liberation movement in order to try, in order to secure at least some legitimacy, if, you know, not, if not recognition for, for, you know, for these movements, uh, claims for independence, and at least 
some legitimacy to continue making these demands. Um, and this had a lot to do with the, with, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia. Um, because these events, you know, these events and the emergence of the new states in the, in, in, in the former Soviet and Yugoslav state, uh, sorry, space, uh, it, it introduced new norms of recognition, right? New norms of international legitimacy. Suddenly, the new states that came out of Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union, in order to become states, in order to gain legitimacy, they, are, they didn't need to show that they were former economies. They needed to show that they can actually govern themselves. They needed to show that they can develop institutions. And the Southern Sudanese leadership and the Kurdish leadership, you know, they, they were not blind to these changes. They started realizing that the practices, right, the practices of, of liberation are changing. And they were quick to embrace it to, because of their long experience in fighting for liberation. They were very quick to embrace these new practices, to realize that, you know, there are changes. And if they wish to, you know, if they wish to, to remain in existence as liberation movements, let alone, in, you know, let alone becoming independent state, they have to also shift their strategies at least, you know, at least slightly to, to, to recalibrate some of their strategies and to put more emphasis on governance, right, on institution building. And you can see in both cases, you can see, I mean, in the case of Kurdistan, of course, you actually had the Kurdistan regional government emerging with, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, establishing a government and a parliament and very rudimentary institutions, but still, right, showing showing that they are trying to govern themselves. Now, of course, the Kurdish, you know, the Kurdish liberation movement in Iraq has been facing tremendous difficulties. In the mid-1990s, there was the civil war between the KDP and the PUK. Um, you know, and then, and, and, you know, after, after, you know, after 2003, the main difficulties to the existence of the Kurdistan regional government have come not necessarily from Baghdad, but from external actors, right, especially Turkey and Iran, whereas in the case of um, so, so, you know, Southern Sudan was actually lucky in the sense that the Sudanese government at some point relinquished its um, its claim over South Sudan and, actually, and accepted. Again, there, there are so many reasons for that, but the Sudanese government accepted, you know, Southern Sudan's demand for, for independence. But even now, even now, I think the legacies of the, um, the legacies of the liberation war in South Sudan, they are still, you know, they are still in place. They are still affecting the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, South Sudanese state, and uh, as as you probably know, as, as some of the listeners probably know, South Sudan has suffered from internal violence and civil war for most of its existence, and I think a lot of it had to do with the circumstances of the birth of South Sudan as a state. Um, but it, you know, it um, the foundations, right? The base, my, my basic argument is still relevant practices and roles shape the way actors think, and especially when it comes to separatist and, um, you know, uh, to separatist and national separatist movements and or national liberation movement, because these ideas, these, these ideas do not simply vanish. They, um, they, they remain in the minds of the nationalist leaderships, and they still develop them, you know, the, these ideas still evolve and, and and keep developing. Yeah, because, exactly, because there is a, what they call intergenerational learning practices, uh, exactly shaping the way people think, and then, of course, uh, act and even design their future projects, I think. So, yeah, Yaniv, uh, this is going to be your last question, and it was a very informative, insightful session, uh, not only for me, I think, but also for our listeners. 
Um, and uh, like considering uh, the focus of uh, these two amazing books on liberation movements from comparative perspective, I'm very curious about your current projects. Can you please tell us a little bit about what you are currently working on and maybe potential some of your potential future projects as well? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to do it. I'll do it shortly because I know, I know I've know i been talking a lot. But um, one of the things that I picked up in my research on the Iraqi and Sudanese responses to the insurgency was these governments, right? The, the Iraqi and Sudanese governments use of local militias as part of their counterinsurgency efforts. And this really, and once again, you, you can see how one project ends up leading to another. So I, I, I really become interested in pro-government militias and how governments use, um, and, and how, not, not, not only how governments use militias to, to, to fight insurgency, but how militias, right, how these, these ad hoc powers, uh, sorry, forces, end up becoming social and political actors. So I'm actually now, um, I'm now dedicating most of my time to studying pro-government militias in different contexts. And I have to admit that unlike, unlike, unlike you know, the book that, that we, we've been discussing so far, this is, actually, this is much more contemporary. I focus much more on recent years. And of course, I still, I, I keep sticking to Iraq and Sudan because these are cases that I'm, I'm really fascinated by. And there's so much to learn from them. But I'm also expanding to other cases to, to understand how militias, how pro-government militias are in fact becoming social and political actors. Yes, it, that sounds fascinating, and I think uh, there's yeah, uh, there is this growing literature on paramilitaries uh, in several uh, like different contexts. I'm pretty sure it's going to be a very interesting project. So we are looking forward to reading your future work. And thank you very much for your time, Yaniv. It was wonderful uh, having you today for or. Curious Studies um, host podcast series at New Books Network. Thank you so much, Jilan, for having me. It was really great discussing uh, the book, and I'm, I'm really glad to be on, you know, on, on uh, New Books Network. So thanks again. Thanks, thanks so much.